Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher, and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the Friend of the Pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com slash store to shop. And we're back with an all-new episode of Keep It Home Edition. <laughs> extreme Home Edition. <laughs> Ex- extreme, extreme Home Edition. <laughs> oh my god. Extreme Home Isolation. Yeah. Extreme. Wow. Uh, well, how's everyone's week been? What have we been consuming? I still am on this trek to watch every 1971 to 1979 movie I've not seen. I'm shocked that there are, are. I'm shocked that there are more. <laughs> of course. I just wanted to draw attention to one in particular. I had never seen the movie Breaking Away. It's like a coming of age movie about kids in Indiana and it culminates in this big bicycle race basically. Yes. I've seen this movie. We we had to watch it freshman year at my Jesuit high school <laughs> on our first retreat where we all slept over in um the school. Uh, which in retrospect um, is probably not a thing we should be doing um, (laughs) given the allegations that have come out uh, from our school later. Uh, But we all stayed overnight and watched Breaking Away. And I guess that was a movie that they felt would like teach us to become like young men in this world. (laughs) (laughs) Well, well, let me tell you something. That's also a strange movie to watch in that circumstance because what I wanted to bring up guys I did not understand that Dennis Quaid was that hot. I oh, never been. Underst- oh, been baby. hot. Oh my god. Dennis Ben Quaid. Ben Quaid. Oh my god. I've been hot thinking about that man. <laughs> the pecs you get in this movie, and he—I think he's like twenty-four or something when they actually filmed mm-hmm. it. He's playing a little bit younger, but one, I did not understand how crazy, like proto Richard Gere, he was in terms of body. And then, mm. secondly. How much he looks like Tom Cruise and how much Tom Cruise probably sidelined a lot of his big ambitions in his mm. career, at least early mm. on. They they have like a similar like um resting kind of anger in the face that like, you know, would lead Tom into a number of action franchises, etc. But mm-hmm. man, Dennis Quaid in this movie has a really unmistakable, super sexy quality. And if I had to watch that in what what you just described, a church basement with my teenage friends. It's so friends, horny. I know. It's crazy. It, so I mean God, have you have you seen the right stuff? Oh my God! Well, we don't have to, we don't even have time to get into an Ed yeah, Harris conversation right now. Truly, I just, just like Dennis Dennis Quaid. I just like I've never wanted someone to be my PE teacher so much. <laughs> who just like hits me with a basketball. I start bleeding, and he says, why don't you fucking hit the showers, Madison? And I go and hit the showers, and then he comes in. And then we have sex. This is a fully fleshed out. Like you're, you're, you are not riffing right now. Like This is something you have dreamt about. I want to fuck Dennis Quaid in my high school locker room. Great. Wonderful. Oh, speaking of men that I didn't I didn't realize were hot. So I'm I'm coming for your title, Miss Lewis. I'm oh. going to I'm going to learn all the Oscar winners for the past 
ever. I'm going to okay. learn them all. And I'm going to learn them all so I can understand what the hell you're talking about. But I watched... <laughs> you're I watched, so invited. Thank you. Thank you. It'll be fun. I watched... Um, and I rewatched it again because I loved it so much when I watched it about a month ago. I finally watched Moonstruck and saw Cher. Like, as, like I've never seen mm. Cher, but Nicolas Cage could get it. Nicolas oh, Cage could get it in so many different ways. Easily. There Even are, now. That People is. forget about that era of his career where he was this like brooding like strange looking but like deeply mm-hmm. kind of testosterone pulsating mm-hmm. dude um god he's so amazing in moonstruck and like <sighs> the one person who wasn't nominated it makes no sense yeah that's true mm. but um you know overall i'm just really trying to watch like stuff that it feels like an iv of feel good you know like i'm watching mm-hmm. a lot of cartoons and like everybody hates chris these sitcom things that i can recognize full house just trying mm. to stabilize myself in that way but other than that, I'm fine. That's fun. Yeah. Uh, by the way, Nicolas Cage in Valley Girl and Wild at Heart. Wild at Just Heart. Two movies. Wild at Heart is um, Lynch. So it's it's him and Dern. Laura Dern. <laughs> oh, yes. You got to well, see. You got to see Deep classic. Deep classic. If we haven't brought yes. up Wild at Heart on this podcast enough, please, like, do yourself yes. a favor. Once we hit five times, I had to go watch it. <laughs> I have been sort of revisiting movies that I haven't seen as well. I haven't picked a specific, like, year or something, you know, or, like, decade. I'm just sort of like, oh, this is a movie I haven't seen, whatever. But, like, I watched Marnie for the first time because I'm such, like, a suspense and, like, um, horror and Hitchcock fan, too. And so it was surprising that I hadn't seen Marnie. And... My God, this movie is awful. Well, it's 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 a strange movie because it's, it's allegedly it's a movie awful, of- awful, awful is awful is a is, is is too strong of a word. Parts of it are <laughs> awful, and parts of it are camp classic. The last half hour is just a true tippy hedron tour de force. The problem <laughs> with it is that it's it's about a woman who is, has like repressed memories, and they compel her to steal. And Sean Connery figures out that something's weird with her and is also in love with her and wants to help her with her um, repressed memories. But by doing so, just sort of like forces her into a relationship with him and like creepily like holds her and kisses her in every scene. And they keep talking about how the touch of a man disgusts her. She's repelled by the touch of men, yet he keeps touching her. It's so creepy. Well, there's straight up what I think you would call a rape scene in that movie, yes. basically. It's um, not comfortable to watch now. It's really strange. Tippi Hedren's also somebody where she's among the most popular actors of that time who just wasn't great. I mean, like, she doesn't compare <laughs> even to, like, um, like Grace Kelly in the 50s and Hitchcock mm-hmm. movies or... Um, you know, uh, later Karen Black was in uh, Family Plot and she was really great in that movie. But... Yeah, Marnie is, it's the other movie he made, like, Spellbound, where it's, like, where the whole premise is, what's up with that strange woman? Well, we solved the strange woman. Yeah. Uh, it's why he, it's better when he, like, subverted that with, like, Psycho, you know? It was, like, because it starts out, like, oh, what's up with Janet Lee? And then, oh, no, wait, it's about Norman Bates. Yeah, you it's know? a head fake. Or, you it's know? a head fake. Like, I keep thinking, too, about the movie about, Tippy Hedren and Hitchcock, and it's, it's just like thinking about how much he tortured her on set, how much he hated her, and and like at the end, I'm just sort of like, at what cost? Because it's not like we got anything great. Mm-hmm. No, I don't like the birds either. Speaking of the birds, that's a movie I had to watch in a lockdown at my school. 
That's strange. I forgot about that. That is wild. Yeah, you know, look at us. Her her acting is just is it is truly like just zero to uh crying. Yes. I enjoyed it because the end of Marnie is just like a lot of her, oh God, and what is happening? Who <laughs> are you? And like for me, that's campy and melodrama mm-hmm. and fun, but like it it can't sustain a movie. You you need more levels. That's also a movie where at the time it was pretty much panned and over the years certain elements of the movie have come back like, oh, that wasn't so bad. But it's not like it's good in any way either. So let's put that where it belongs in history, which is there are moments and yet not enough. There are two moments that are high camp and insanity. One is when she remembers her repressed memories at the end, which... Of course, you know, and then there's a flashback to her mom, um, like remembering like when she was a prostitute, mm-hmm. and the, the the young mom is actually played by Melody uh, Scott Thomas, who um, plays Nikki Newman on The Young and the Restless. So that was lovely to see mm-hmm. um, her in a younger role. But the other part of this movie is every time she sees red, she goes into a trance, <laughs> and she sees red and. It just also makes you wonder, like, what has happened every other time this bitch has seen red in her adult life? Yeah. Like, did she just go into a frenzy? Um, she sees red while they're riding horses and, like, hunting. And, of course, there's always the person in red in front of everyone. So you should have known that you were going to see red and freak out, girl. The horse goes crazy and then, like, jumps over a um, wall that's made of brick and the horse hits its legs and just sort of, so, like, falls over and the horse is in pain and she needs to put it out of his misery and she runs screaming up to a neighbor. It's like, give me your gun! Give me your gun! I have to shoot this horse! And it is one of the wildest scenes I have seen in cinema. Truly bonkers. Hitchcock, I mean, obviously is outsized and epic usually, but it's actually rarely out of control feeling, which is what that movie really feels. And by the way, can't you just picture Marnie like combing through Taylor Swift's discography at Best Buy, getting to red and just freaking out? <laughs> 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 we have a. Uh, I'm gonna be thinking about that all day. Okay, <laughs> but we uh, we do have an episode to get to, and it is a great fucking lineup. We have. I I didn't think that we could top Jane Fonda last week, but mm. this week we have Betty Gilpin, who was one of my favorite fucking actresses of the moment right now. Gay icon. Everyday icon. Uh, <laughs> she's entrancing. She's just so specific and so excellent at what she does. And um, she's going to get that Emmy sooner or later. So yeah. about that? Yes. Very clever. One of the most clever people. She is here with us. And then it is hot takes time on Keep It. Uh, this week we are going to dive into one of Aida's hot takes on pop culture. One of Aida's correct in- hot takes. <laughs> we'll see about that. And we invited you all to share your opinion on it. Uh, and it, it's going to be a fiery debate, I'm sure. And then we are joined by Alan Yang uh, to talk about his new film, Tiger Tail. And he's excellent as well. 
We did a good work. I, again, do we deserve these people? Who's to say? Yes. And should we ever go back to the studio? Because this has been very successful thus far. So <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I think, I think the Zoom episodes of Keep It are like, we're, we're in new territory. It's, it's like a recast on a sitcom or something. Mm-hmm. I'm Aunt Viv. Oh, I am definitely Hillary Banks. No, no doubt. <laughs> you think you're more Hillary Banks than me? <gasps> it, it is competitive. Well, somebody here's got to be the Tatiana Ali, and I think it should be you. Mm. Yes, yes, yes. I feel like I can be that Tatiana Ali character. I did love her too short lived music career. Correct. Well, she's a gorgeous girl, too. Yeah. Anyway. We'll be right back with more Keep It. Census. Respond to the census. The census is a questionnaire set by the federal government every 10 years to collect data about everyone who lives in the U.S. and its territories. That info about our population is used to determine who gets federal resources and how many representatives we get. It's a big fucking deal. And for the first time, you can fill out the census online at my2020census.gov. It takes five minutes, so do it now and remind the people you know too. Lastly, if you can, please consider supporting Crooked's Coronavirus Relief Fund at cricket.com slash coronavirus. And now, let's get to Betty Gilpin. Betty, it is so good to see you. Hi, I love. We obviously we all love you so much, but you're actually you, obsessed. Yes. Hi. So yes. anyway, hi, yes. <laughs> Thank you so Thanks much. Thanks. On. I am equally obsessed. I'm. I'm so excited to be here. Are we all really anywhere at this moment? Um, <laughs> exactly. I am excited to meet you. One because I love glow. I think that you are a. Thanks. I was going to say like, burgeoning gay icon, but I think you're already there. Mm-hmm. You're literally already there. Uh, <laughs> after your Las Culturistas episode, oh you're there. <laughs> God, thank you so much. Yes, and I work. <laughs> I work with Matt Rogers, and we're friends with Bowen, and so that was just like that's one of my favorite podcast episodes of last year. I'm so obsessed with those two. <laughs> I really feel like I am the uncool aunt that's like repurposing all of their and your guys's phrasing with my friends and they're like what a cool phrase and only I know that it's just a worse sadder commercialized vanilla version of what you guys do and I'm sorry <laughs> uh, but no, I feel like I really enjoyed you from like Nurse Jackie and then Glow I came to that show first because I love wrestling I grew up on wrestling. You do? Whoa, what a twist. Yeah, I used to watch re- like a gay who watched wrestling, but um, the guys were really hot. It's very gay. Yes, very it's, gay. It I mean, it wasn't be gay. Monday nights, it was called Monday Night Raw. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's right. raw. It the costumes are so small. Yeah. I mean, it, it yeah. Also, yeah. The, the athleticism is mostly drama based. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's like beyond soapy. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. It's very musical theater centric. It's people fighting on behalf of vulnerability and stakes in tiny costumes playing to the mezzanine. Like it, it couldn't be more Evita. <laughs> <laughs> What's making it even more 
Avita like is they were still doing wrestling for a bit with no audience. Yes, yes. And there was one episode that I saw, and it was really heightening the theater of it without the crowd <laughs> cheering, without thinking like, oh, this is like wrestling. You were like, no, this is just a performance. And it was so fun. Yes. Yeah. I feel like more and more now, now that sort of mumblecore and authenticity is trending, it's like we need an, uh, like a Trojan horse excuse, like hide your vegetables for vulnerability and good versus evil. So like wrestling or comic books, when people see as a genre, they're like, okay, it's okay for that person to cry or to play to the mezzanine because they're in a costume. But if they were next to a kitchen sink, then you have to mumble and scratch your face a lot but yeah. <laughs> like people are, are at ease when there's sparkles okay <laughs> i was gonna say that reminds me in general when i'm watching you act you're one of my favorite types of people to watch because literally watching you think is fascinating like it reads on your face and i'm constantly like how much of that is preparation how much of this is like vulnerability i'm peering into it just seems expertly done and i feel like you are somebody who knows acting in such a way where you must have favorite acting ticks that people do that you are always clocking. Do you have favorite ticks you are always noticing when people do them? You know, I, I'm 33. Uh, Ira, I Googled, we're born the same week. Are we? July 1986. Oh my yes. God, you're a Leo. A week ahead. I'm a cancer one day away from you. <sighs> I'm the 21st. I'll forgive you. Yeah. <laughs> That's all right. I know. I hear that I'm a cancer trapped inside a Leo. Like, or right I'm a Leo cusp. trapped inside a cancer. I've yeah. got an alpha that, like, has ambitions and dreams. And then there's just, like, a weepy woman in pajamas being like, it's too dangerous. <laughs> Uh, I think a, one of the reasons, one of the myriad of reasons I didn't work a ton for like a decade was because I made too many faces. And I think a lot of parts for actresses uh, in their 20s, I think it's very like minimalism and sort of like whispery what's going on in that head of hers instead of like externalized mm. everything i would just always get called back for like the drunk aunt for gossip girl <laughs> <I was> like, <laughs> no one's aunt yet i would say anyone who really externalizes what's going on i i really enjoy and i i also think that's no longer the case i think that was really like an early aughts thing and i think there's so many Actresses in particular right now who are from like 21 to 20 whatever, there's like 40, I feel like right now, who are so incredible to watch that, you know, Florence Pugh mm. I love and mm. Elle Fanning I love and Eliza Scanlon who is Yes, in she's Little amazing. Yes, yes, yes. There's just so many of them. I have major actor crushes on people who are 10 years younger than me, which is alarming. Um, Amy <laughs> Adams, I think, is my number one actor. I am an Amy Adams stan. I love her so much. Yeah. One of her first appearances, it was on an episode of Buffy. And I feel like I've loved her no ever way. since then. Yes, she played the cousin of one of the characters, Tara. And, like, she comes in um, in, like, one episode in the sixth season. And the family is just sort of, like, yokels who hate her. And you think they hate it because, like, she's a lesbian. But, like, they hate her because, like, she's a witch. And, like, they knew that she had magic powers or something. Um, <laughs> but Amy is so good in that. I think with supporting roles, it's so hard to play them like you're catching that character in the middle of their day, in the middle of their story, instead mm -hmm. of like, you know, arms folded, sweater women, 
you know, just <laughs> serving to externalize their scene partners uh, storyline. And I think you're just always catching Amy Adams's character in the middle of their thousand year long life. Like Arrival, yes. even though that is so genre, I feel like that to me, Aida, is what it feels like to be a woman. It's like, oh, you're, you're existing now and you're existing in the future and you're existing in caveman times and you're about to kill yourself and you're about to save the world. Like, she's just, to me, the most amazing. Yeah, I definitely think that you're right, that they tend to give her, especially the most inner life. I'm very down with that. Yes. Yeah. So, um, Betty Betty Gilpin, and your name is one of those names, I have to say the first and last name, Betty Gilpin, Betty Gilpin. Um, <laughs> I, and Ira said it, but I admire you so much. Like, you were literally one of my favorite actresses, and the moment I saw you on screen, I remember the first time I watched Glow, I was like, oh, she got something. She definitely has something. <laughs> and I've seen you in Glow and Masters of Sex, and most recently, The Hunt, and not surprise, surprise is the wrong word because I know how capable you are but I was I'm always so impressed at how you steal the show like there is and don't shut me down when I say this but you always <laughs> manage to make everyone else look awful so I'm, but, I'm kidding, <laughs> oh my I'm God. but 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 is there a type of role or like is it a broad comedy sort of role or more dramatic role that you tend to want to act in and also like to see yourself in being the Leo trapped inside the cancer. Not that I even know about astrology, but I <laughs> I think I, to protect myself, set the bar really low in terms of what kinds of roles I wanted to play. Being a New York actor, I did primarily theater for like a decade. And so I was like, okay, I'll do whatever parts in film and TV to qualify for health insurance and pay the bills and get appetizers and uh, look at a horizon every once in a while. Um, and then... Uh, in theater is where I'll do the kind of like weird, strange gremlin-y people that I think <laughs> I probably won't be allowed to play on screen because there's just so few opportunities for women to do that. Mm -hmm. I thought that for a long time. And so I think role-wise on screen, I kind of played girl whose books I carried in high school like I'm not that person I have a lot of field notes on that person but I played a lot of like goblety women like I said orchids and like <laughs> back and love themselves and while that's so fun the hunt was really the first time where I was like oh I, I definitely thought I would never be allowed to do this kind of thing like to me that's the pure id like baby dinosaur crazy person inside that I definitely thought I would you know I try to kind of shoehorn that person in on the sixth take on some stuff and they rarely use it but this was like baby dinosaur unplugged let me literally say three things about you in the hunt one <laughs> gay icon status cemented I'm not gonna ruin this movie for people but your scene with Hillary Swank is oh my God. the movie it is the movie Okay, this was one of the last movies my friends and I saw. Uh, we went to the theater two days before, like, the shutdown in L.A. And oh, we watched this movie, and we were, like, drunk on wine, and we are like, what is The Hunt? What is The Hunt going to be like? Because it had taken so long to come out, but we were like, we got to see this movie. Right. We also know, like, Ike Barinholtz. So, like, we had, um, one of our friends, oh, Chris wow. Schleicher, worked with him, and so we yeah, really I wanted to see this movie in theaters. And that scene... Everything. Everything. It was giving me <laughs> alias. It was giving me people are going to be playing this scene at gay bars. Oh, my God. Two, you are like 
Joan Crawford and Johnny Guitar in this movie. <laughs> just, like, just like gravelly voice, walking around like it's your fucking town. Only thing you were missing was like the clown makeup that Joan Crawford has on. Oh <laughs> and the Temple Grand and Wardrobe. Yeah. Yes. yes. <laughs> Thank you for picking Three. up <laughs> Three is, I think that this will be a movie that will help you cross over into what I think is real, whether they're an actress status, and that's whether black people know who you are. <laughs> and I can say that this movie, having come out on VOD, probably helped in that respect because so my grandmother and my mom my whole family sort of listens to this show every week and right. they're always like oh who are you interviewing who are you interviewing and i said oh i'm interviewing this actress that i love betty gilpin like i don't know if you probably heard of her she's on the show glow um and they were like no we haven't seen this like what else has she done i was like well she was just in this movie the hunt and they were like we watched that movie last night Oh my god! I was like, the woman, the blonde woman, and I was like, they're like, we love her. She's yes. great. She's That's great. So nice. So, That's so nice. You are there. I know it is. It has been an interesting road with this movie. <laughs> it's now we filmed it last March, so it's now a full year. It was supposed to come out in September. The president canceled it, and then it was supposed to again <laughs> come out on March thirteenth. And then, of course, all movie theaters in the world were shut down March 15th. If it were my, like, Star is Born moment, like, I'm Allie on the stage starting to be like, ah, and then aliens land in the background. Like, and everyone's like, oh, you should turn around. Like, congrats on your song, but, like, we have to cancel the song. Songs don't matter anymore. But, yeah, I, I do think that we kind of beat covid to couch culture already like we were we were already it's like as a depressive i've been quarantining for years darling <laughs> <laughs> there's something even just the way you like articulate yourself that is so fascinating like one Thanks. it just seems like there's an innate hyper articulate quality about you and then two something that is so always askew like it's always unexpected what you say and i feel like <laughs> so if you were just a writer and by the way you're a great writer people should look up betty's writing that would be one thing but as an actor that's extra fascinating to me like what like weird crevices of your personality have you found it hardest to incorporate into your acting have you always been able to embrace fully who you are as an you know and project that as an actor it's such a strange line for like you work with jimmy kimmel right Yes, yes. Um, you know, watching talk shows and having been on 2.1 talk shows, it's funny to watch modern actresses now. We're having to sort of toe this line of like, you know, everyone is seemingly in this business to fulfill some sort of high school revenge fantasy. And actresses are having to at the same time convince the world I am that headgear wearing like wallflower who never got her time in the sun who hates herself <laughs> who now you can grant her time in the sun and I'm that cheerleader who ignored you who you can now control and like on <laughs> on talk shows I feel like it's the perfect example like you look like the Versailles porn poodliest version of yourself and the story is about like I fell down the stairs and that's so fucking me because I suck like, you know it's such an embarrassing juxtaposition that I totally am 
you know, feeding into all the time. It's becoming increasingly more popular to have women have farts and questions, too, but it's pretty slow. <laughs> I think it's because Glow has women. Right. Yeah. You yeah. know, w- women behind the scenes. Like, you started out as that, like, cheerleader sort of, like... Debbie, like a bitch almost sort of character. We're supposed to like not like you in sort of regards to Alice and Brie and just like seeing how both of you have been able to blossom throughout the entire series and your friendship. It feels so real. Like you hate her. You love her. I mean, it's it's just such beautiful writing. Yeah, and that, I really lucked out because the creators of GLOW, Liz Flayhive and Carly Mensch, they were both staff writers on Nurse Jackie, which I did seasons five, six, and seven of that show. And the first four seasons were show ran by this lesbian couple who created the show. And they, you know, Nurse Jackie was a show about no-nonsense women who were good at their jobs and wore no makeup and low ponies and chapstick and told it like it was. And then in season five, they switched showrunners to two dudes who were like, okay, let's drum up viewership. Let's write in a character who has an empty brain and no pants all the time and enter Gilpin. Um, and so, you know, you saw your, my like areolas and taint before you saw my face on that show or heard me speak, um, just naked all the time. But it sort of became a real life tableau of that sort of impossible duality of actressdom because I was doing scenes where I was, you know, naked and silent walking across the room, but slowly the female playwright staff writers were like, oh, there's a gremlin person that we should start writing for. And so I had to, like, appease the bros and be like, I'll still get naked, but also they're going to let me make some faces in that scene later this afternoon when I'm allowed to have a sandwich and make choices. Um, so it kind of, I felt like they were kind of whisking me across the moat. And then I got to make a show with Liz and Carly with no bros. <laughs> I still got naked on my call. So. <laughs> It's actually so messed up because even as a woman, I hate that I'm bringing this up to you, but I have to. Do it. Um, your dress that you wore to the Vanity Fair Oscar party. Like, oh. <laughs> I close my eyes and it's etched right there. It's like you, Tracy Ellis Ross and Renee Zellweger, and you are a distant first. Like I love that dress so oh, much. Thank you so much. To make it less of a vain question, the piece you wrote for Vanity Fair, where you talk about, where you, where you talk about your character in The Hun and I mean, just... You say some of the most wild things, like Lewis was saying. Like, I am, admire so much that you can, in a sentence, say, like, shitting their silks. And, <laughs> oh, I have this written down. Obese otters having sex in a paint can. Like, I don't know where you mine this information, like, these <laughs> metaphors. I mean, I want to ask about your writing process, but I also want to ask about, like, what do you feel your character in The Hunt says about America in a broader sense? Or says about, you know, the state of where we're all at right now? Partially why I use so many stupid metaphors in writing and in, you know, my acting process, I I really try to make it as abstract and kind of deranged poem-y as possible, like in the margins, too, because I know how in my head I can get when I think about a result that like, oh, this is, people are going to watch this. Is this bad? Is what I'm saying bad? Do people use their hand in this way? Like once I get in that (laughs) section of my brain, I'm locked in there for days and I never know what's going to send me there. It just makes me super nervous and I'm superstitious about 
getting locked in there. You know, at the Vanity Fair party, I felt that, that like, oh gosh, there's something about validation that feels really good and different, but it's very dangerous because I think it's way easier to get locked in that part of your brain, in the Vanity Fair party in your brain. Like, I do think there's this Turkish delight in our business, this temptation to be like, you can keep going down that long road to a destination that you can't see that I think is good, but it takes a long time. I don't know what the result is. Or you can just pull over here, kind of get that hit of validation while you're in this very brief genetic island of time where you can kind of get that validation without work or um, doing uncomfortable mm -hmm. thinking. <laughs> it's so yeah. tempting and very scary. Like, and I, I feel it definitely, you know, like wearing that dress. I was like, my tits are real. I wouldn't pay for these back problems and they're going to be in my shoes in three seconds. <laughs> like, I'm going to wear this dress right now. Um, and I, I get scared that I'm going to get trapped in the part of my brain that's like, okay, this is the only part of us that is going to get us the validation that feels good. And then, I don't know. Mm -hmm. I, that's not even what you were asking. <laughs> you're asking what No, uh, but thank America. you. <laughs> One thing I really liked sort of about your Lost Culturistas episode was just sort of talking about the difference between sort of like L.A. and New York. And like, it's so weird because like I came up through theater too, you know, and I, I love the theater. And, yeah. um, but, you know, we've been here like nine years. Lewis and I have been here like almost the same amount of time, you know. I feel like, and we've been friends for almost nine, eight years at this point. And it's just interesting being here and, you know, like being people who love art and being people who just like, like that sort of, I don't know, weirdness and not even just weirdness. It's like when, when people come on our show, it's like, we are excited to see them, you know, like right. we're excited about the work they're creating and we want to yeah. talk to them about that work. And, you know, it's, it's hard not to, you know, sometimes like read um, the comments, as you said, you know, like yeah, thinking yeah. what people think about you. Like, are you gushing over someone too much? Or like, are you having too much fun? Are you thinking about the right things? You know, and it's right. It's a weird little place. And it's, it, but it all feels so dumb now that we're all just in our homes. You know? <laughs> yeah, totally. Well, <laughs> it's such a strange shift. We're all in this for two reasons. Like that connection and the sort of like, crazy churchy feeling when you feel like you're st like looking into someone's backstage and letting them look into your backstage and you're both like oh my god <laughs> like I, I can see under the carpet of your you know brain and this is so vulnerable and sexy and exciting and dangerous but also it's about like we're also you know <laughs> narcissists and mm -hmm. this particular time especially on Instagram watching the world try to shift from self-focus to unity and being totally unable to do it is so embarrassing and wonderful to watch <laughs> you think we should all just sing a song now and uh, maybe a John Lennon one <laughs> yeah that's what we need yeah <laughs> yeah <ridiculous>. <laughs> I feel like every kid or like everyone who starts in theater, it's like you have that one role that you're thinking about. Like, do you have one like play, one like something that like you really need to do before you're done with acting? Do you guys know who Chris Abbott is? He played like James White and he's amazing. Oh, he was in the yes. lead in Catch he was on 22. Girls. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, he and I have been friends forever and we've done, I think, four plays together. Um, and 
I think he's just one of the best actors alive. And how beautiful he is, is his albatross because he is, it's, he's just so insanely talented. I'd say watch Catch-22 if, if you guys haven't. Um, but he and I have been dying to do Streetcar forever. Mm. And I, to, to me, I think Stella is really the, the part. I would love to play Blanche too. Um, I wish there was a way to play both and just like put a wig on a mop and then switch her every time. Like, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure the Wooster group could figure that out. Yeah, you're right. You're right. <laughs> also, now that we're in shutdown, we'll probably have pre-recorded plays. So maybe yeah. you can get away with playing yes. every character. My, yeah, exactly. I just got the collection of like every Tennessee Williams play and oh. friends and I have literally been talking about like are we at the point where we're about to zoom and do like just read like um, <laughs> yeah. any of his plays? Just like I was like, "Sweet bird of youth, let's just do it." Oh my god! Um, but uh, Stella is the part. Yeah. If Blanche is the flashy one, and I feel like if you're an actor, though, if you like theater, you pick Stella. She is. There is so much going on in there. She loves her sister. She's jealous of the attention her sister is getting. She mm-hmm. loves Stanley. She mm-hmm. hates Stanley. She hates her place in life, but like she's there. She is New Orleans. And also just the yeah. uh, the sheer, I mean, if you remember the, the Kim Hunter performance from the 51 version, mm-hmm. the... I think the most memorable part of the movie is her carnality, like leaping into Stanley's arm. Is like that's kind of yes. what the play is all about, you know? Yes, yes, totally. Yeah, there are so many stories and plays and movies and books. I, I feel like this about House of Mirth I just read, where it seems like a love story where the girl is just the woman is just digmatized, and it's he's awakening her cave woman, but actually, it's just when society is oppressing you in a certain way or doesn't let you externalize your inner <laughs> Leo or Alpha or whatever, <laughs> seeing someone else who society is letting do that and being near them, to me, it's why I'm attracted to toxic masculinity. I've never made out with someone yeah. who's never broken someone's nose. Like, being near <laughs> someone who... And treating that person like a boxcar to hide in in life and being like, wow, you go through the world just swinging and shouting and taking what's yours. I am not like that, but God, I guess I have that in me and I'm just going to hitch my wagon to you. And to me, that's Stella. Like she's seeing what she doesn't want to be in Blanche and seeing what she could be in Stanley and obviously loves him. But, you know, I think she's just born at the wrong time and it's so devastating. Well, I mean, if anything, the born at the wrong time thing is like Stella feels so much like Debbie on Glow. You just get to be like a woman who's in the 80s in this period who what's expected of her. And the third season, it's been great seeing you blossom into a businesswoman on the show. And I can't (laughs) wait for season four. I can't wait for people to see The Hunt. I mean, this was such a joy having you here, Betty. Thank you so much. Thanks, guys. Uh, God, we truly like no one is like you, and no one will ever be like you. Whatever you know, do next, we are so there yes. for it. Yeah, yes. Thank you. Cannot so wait much. to see you when this is all over. Yeah. Yes. Agree. Yeah. <laughs> yes, <didn't> IRL. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you, buddy. Keep it is brought to you by Hinge. Hinge is the dating app designed 
to be deleted. If you're really good at it, that is. I've actually met several really good friends through Hinge. I've used it, I can't believe this, over a decade now. Woof, what a life I've had. Well, you know what they've added within a decade of us being on Hinge is their new LGBTQIA plus prompts, which are designed to help queer daters better connect based on similarities, interests, and compatibility. Hinge Prompts helps you show off your full personality and connect with someone who appreciates you. Plus, these prompts were created in collaboration with Glad, so they are by the people, for the people. Some of the prompts are, the first time I knew I was gay was, mm, I was literally in the act of being gay, like hooking up with somebody when I admitted it. (laughs) Denial is strong and hard in the Catholic Midwest. Mine was Tom Cruise's Vanity Fair cover, the shirtless one. You just turned to an imaginary camera and said, I'm gay. Yeah. Or broke the fourth wall. <laughs> You're like Fleabag. Other prompts include, I feel proudest of who I am when. It feels affirming when others, blank. I connect to my community by. I wish I could tell the younger version of myself. I'm going to say, whenever I watch that in a drag race semifinal, when they're like, if I could talk to my younger self, I would say, I would be like, girl, get tighter clothes. I mean, what's going on with what you're wearing? You look like you're in the X Games. Other prompts include, my chosen family is the best at and gender euphoria looks like. Download Hinge and show off your full self using their LGBTQIA plus prompts today. Then find someone worth deleting the app for. Hey, y'all, we just had a few minor technical difficulties with putting the show together this week. So if some of the audio sounds off, in the next couple segments. Um, Sorry about that, and we'll fix it all next time. It's officially hot takes time on Keep It. That's right. Louis, Aida, and I have hot takes on different pop culture moments, and we shared them on Twitter and Instagram and opened up the conversation to you, our listeners, to see what you think about them. This week, we're going to dive into Aida's hot take, and let's just say we're going to have a lot to say about it. Are we going to fight? Okay. We so, gonna fight, girl. My my hot take, my hot take, and I was very specific about how I worded this because I said if I had to choose one Noel's sister, if we're in some like apocalyptic world, hypothetically, if we're in some <laughs> apocalyptic world and we have to choose one of them, I'm choosing Solange, hands down, mm-hmm. hands down. There's like it's not even in question. If I had to pick the person who was right for me, who was done the most for me, it is 100 percent Solange Knowles, and. I'm not saying that she's superior. I'm definitely not saying that. I think everybody can have their little piece from whatever sister. But for me, Solange has Don't pit two bad bitches against each other. (laughs) At first I was like, this isn't fair because it's apples to oranges, truly. Like, they don't even do the same type of anything. But I I wanted to put us in this uncomfortable situation where we had to decide. (laughs) Here's what I'll say is interesting about this take. First of all, obviously the sheer amount of material Beyonce has compared Mm -hmm. to Solange. That said, because you're basically comparing essences, I think you can kind of get rid of that part of the argument against this. You're correct. It's not a discography. Mm -hmm. It's a feel. Right. And she has the kind of more, um, a poetic side, really, right? You know? Um, That said, if we're talking about Solange, I mean, of course I love A Seat at the Table, but that last album, which I call Asleep at the Table... I hate you. I hate you, and I'm going to say it right now. Here's why. So, Billy, you know how much Beyonce has to put into her albums to make them pop like that? Like, Solange gave us, like, 12 scratch takes, 12 demos, and called them songs, and they were still the most beautiful thing I'd ever heard, and made music videos in photo booth, and they still slap. 
So listen, she scammed on that album for real. Stop. I will say, I will say, I saw her do it live though at um, Camp Flogma, and mm-hmm. that was that was like how that album was supposed to be taken in. It's supposed to be live, the theatrical performance, like. That's what it is. At heart, Solange is giving you theater. She's giving you drama. And that's what I love about her. But the album itself was a scam. You're wrong. Do you know the type, <laughs> the finesse and the like self-awareness it takes to go on stage and just dance like a triangle and everyone is like in awe of you? <laughs> she really just moves like this. And so she kills it. She kills it. She's given me lyrics that I think about all the time. Like they are tantamount to Audre Lorde lines of poetry. So... I don't know. Beyonce, Beyonce do have bops, but Solange, that's the that's the Noel's sister. That is the one. I think it sounds like you're speaking of someone who also hasn't seen Beyonce live. This is so disrespectful for you to call me out like this. Like but, I'm just see, to have because because the thing about the thing about gender. Beyonce, the thing about <laughs> Beyonce is like, yes, you can call her like whatever. Like, oh, there's the music. Like, oh, here's this person who's just sort of like a performer. Um, but she gives you so much on stage and it's just sort of like this grittiness that like you don't really get unless you are there watching you could see it on like a televised performance and she's given you those uh before but i just feel like the sort of like i'm here and the way she will like contort herself i think i could describe maybe the super bowl performance you know where like where she has that like she was made into memes of like the incredible hulk and stuff because it's just like she gets dirty and real and just like lets herself be taken over by the music. Like she'll come out, shake that ass. She will slay. Ira. And then she will leave the fucking stage. However, I want want to counter that by saying, I I mean, it's obviously clear she's like an incredibly dynamic performer, perhaps the most definitively dynamic performer of our generation. But if we're talking about what she does as an artist, I still think there's a sense of, I don't want to say there's a lack of authorship about what she does, but it, it feels like it was drawn together by committee in a certain way, right? Like it's the best of production. It's the best of songwriting. And like, clearly she can't produce all of those elements. It's just, it's too much. It's too top of the line in every way. Mm-hmm. Whereas Solange does feel like a completely self-started, almost like a one-man operation. It's coming directly from her every time. So I think, yes. again... To, to get it down to what Aida's argument is, it still feels fair to me. It still mm-hmm. feels fair, you know? I will still say, though, that Shirley Manson recently had a... She's been doing this thing on Instagram where she's been naming a different female artist uh, each day and sort of writing, like, a little essay about them, uh, which I didn't know I needed in my life. But uh, <laughs> thank you, Shirley Manson. But she wrote the thing about Beyonce and just about, like... There is something to this, what you would say is like by committee thing, you know, like written mm-hmm. things like just coming together for her. But I think if we were to denigrate her for that, to give Solange a notch over that, you know, it's just sort of like, where would we be with like Whitney Houston, you know, or like Aretha, you know, like th- these people who are artists and can take someone's art or words and sort of like, make it something else, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, that would be like denigrating an actor for not writing their own play that they were just in, you know? But, but it's but like, I, they of course, can I don't do, think it's can, denigration. No. I'm not, not denigrating, but I just like, they can do something with those words, with that sound, with that performance that can't be done by anyone else. 
And I think that what she does in interpreting things from other artists and like like a true collaboration is, is just created such a interesting artist that has been such a blueprint for so many other artists in the future and has also like borrowed on so much artistry mm-hmm. um, that has existed before her. And I love Solange. I love Solange. Um, but I will say, you know, that like seeing her come into her own too, you know, I mean, like she was also releasing like, you know, like some Sandcastle discos, you Don't. know, some like that solo, that solo star, that first album too, you know, like she, she was trying to give you some like little bops like that too. So, you know, she has like the seat at the table that isn't the entirety of Solange. Multiple points have been made. And still, I would like to say that Solange does be, she does dance on stage. You've seen her little like frog hop that she does, the little jump. That's a bop. That's a move. That's a move right there. That, and then two, I understand what both of you guys are saying, but for me, I think the reason why I would pick Solange is because I like holistic creators, like creators that mm-hmm. I know that they have. If you check Beyonce's songwriting credits, they're like all written by James Fauntleroy. Like they're Beyonce doesn't put a lot into the creation, but I will okay, say they're not all written by vessel, James Fauntleroy. Relax, Aida. just let me okay. be hyperbolic for a second. <laughs> <laughs> let's let's be factual. I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to be factual on that one. <laughs> but but again. Well, then I'm going to say if you had to pick one, is it Beyonce or Solange? For me, it's Beyonce. I mean, just, but also, but like I grew up with Beyonce, you know, mm-hmm. like Destiny's Child came out in 90, like seven, ninety eight, And for me, that is middle school. I mean, she's been with me since but a so kid, did I. you know, like that is that is my life. Like, I didn't start listening to Solange until the last four or five years. So Beyonce was the one that she was the mainstay. But when, yeah. when Solange came in, supplanted, like, just totally took over as Noel's sister role. Um, I would, I mean, to respond to that, I mean, like, if I'm talking about my specific lifeblood, like, it is ultimately, like, like a singer-songwriter type, like, a you know, a Liz Fair and Amy Mann, a Joni Mitchell, whomever. And I feel like Solange is more like those people than Beyonce is. That said, because... Beyonce has melded the sort of Supreme slash Tina Turner backstory now with these like intense, you know, I I mean like uh, Lemonade is probably like the miseducation of Lauryn Hill of our time in terms of like impact of an album, you know, and Mm -hmm. giving us a point of view. That very unexpected evolution is singular enough to me that I think I would still pick her. Still pick Beyonce. Yeah. You know, I feel like she's taken that sort of era like tina turner is such a good example you know like taking that era of a performer who has like a songwriter like like the phil specter era for like tina turner and like she can take that into a whole sort of other arena where she's giving you that but also giving you the essence of like a prince who is just like dominating a stage and giving Mm. you sort of like just a weirdness and a vibe that i just feel like I don't know. It's there. And I feel like a lot of people just don't see it. I th- Ira, I think you just put something out that should be noted is that Beyonce did get weird. It, you know, yes. for a while it was like, I don't want to say conventional radio music, but you know, it's, it's something you can put on. It, it's like you can put it on a nineties hit compilation mm-hmm. and not think twice about it or a two thousands hits compilation. And then the unexpected like humor in her more recent music and the, the strange sexuality of it, I think has been, what makes her more competitive with Solange in terms of the rubric Aida has devised. Mm-hmm. Okay, I think we realized that I am 
diehard beehive. Lewis <laughs> <laughs> is on the side of Beyonce. You're on the side of Solange. Mm-hmm. Why don't we see what our listeners think? I love Solange Knowles like any other Black woman in America. I think she makes beautiful music that speaks to the Black female experience. But to argue that that's who you would pick if you only had to pick one Knowles sister is ridiculous. <laughs> and as I was thinking, what would I miss the most if Solange did not exist? It would be the current Proud Family theme song that I really hope they reuse in the reboot. <laughs> Other than that, I don't think I could live without Don't Hurt Yourself by Beyonce featuring Jack White. I think if that song didn't exist, I wouldn't exist in the same way. Mm-hmm. So I firmly disagree with this hot take. Mm. Yes, yes. Who Look. the fuck do you think I is? <laughs> Look, I've, heard, I've heard y'all's cases, but when I think of the lyrics... I. Solange gives me aesthetic. She gives me something that when I close my eyes, I can see colors, I can see shapes, I can see imagery, like something that really invokes feeling in me without me having to think of even a single song. Do you understand? I do drugs, but I don't smoke enough weed to (laughs) love Solange that much, I think. I think that's truly I think that's truly what's it. I would like lay rose petals out and light some candles and just listen to Seat at the Table and I would feel fulfilled, fully fulfilled. I was high as fuck when I saw her show at Flognaw from this mm-hmm. last album. So I will say that I got the oral experience what I needed. I was like, <laughs> oh, th- this, this is like the echelon. This is the pinnacle of Solange. And I was like, yes, yes. But I will still point to... One of the most entrancing moments of a Solange concert with me was when I saw her performance at the House of Blues for her true EP. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a moment where the audience realized that Beyonce was in the balcony watching her sister um, and like took so much joy in her sister's music that she was dancing along to the music and I couldn't take my eyes off Beyonce. Wow. Wow. No, I understand that though. I mean, that's that's just like, what are you supposed to? But that's the novelty Mm -hmm. of that situation. I don't necessarily think that that's because she's more entrancing or anything. Like, I went to the Waco Theater that Tina Lawson owns over in North Hollywood. And while people were performing, I was just watching Tina. (laughs) Like, it really is just who they are and the people, like, they are compelling people. I'm going to just say that. You didn't expect her to be there. Speaking of the true EP, I, I will never forget having heard for the first time that that song's called Some Things Never Seem to Fucking Work, right? By yes. um, Solange. There are lyrics yeah. in that. Like Even just when she says, at Jimmy John's when I was 17, where it's just like immediately mm-hmm. vulnerable making and yes. um, surprising. It, 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 it's that like, oh, I didn't know I was going to get to know you like that. you mm-hmm. know. Mm. So I, th- I think she does have that, I don't want to say over Beyonce, but sp- apart from Beyonce and that, the ways in which she is vulnerable as a singer-songwriter are always surprising. Yes, her willingness. Speaking of that, my favorite Solange um, track actually is a track that wasn't on the True EP, but it's from that sort of same session. Uh, I believe it's her and Dev Hines doing a cover of um, He Doesn't Even Know I'm Alive by Janet Jackson. Oh, wow. That mm. is gorgeous. Um, also, her song with Dirty Projectors is um, maybe like mm-hmm. my favorite Solange era. I remember the first time I heard a Solange song, it was Losing You, and she did it with Dev Hines. And I lost my mind. Like, I literally, there's a scream that's used as a beat in that track. Mm-hmm. Come on, come on. Sonically. But then again, that is Dev the Hines. Oh, well, yeah, that's true. <laughs> he's, he's bringing that. <laughs> 
Okay. okay. It's not it's it's not James Fault Leroy, but it's Deb Hines. And I would be remiss if I, <laughs> I would be remiss if I had to compare the two visual albums of Lemonade and then the most recent Solange visual album, it's not even a question for me. It's not even a yes. question. Yes, lemonade. Anyway, okay, uh <laughs> play, play the next little track. Mm-mm. Uh, let's get one more listener response uh, and maybe see if there's someone who agrees with Aida out there. <laughs> Hello, Kolya here. Big fan of Keep It. Loved you guys for a while. Ira, you're crazy. Aida, love your Instagram. Lewis, you're a walking encyclopedia, so <laughs> go off, I suppose. We both stand Amy Adams, so I love that <laughs> Um So I'm responding to the question of if we could only have one Noel sister. And I think that we have to consider... You know, what does this mean historically? Does this mean that they never existed? Does this mean they just, like, die or something? Does this mean that, like, Solange never released Fuck the Industry because Beyonce never got huge? Does this mean that Solange gets as popular as Beyonce? Because I'm considering this, do I want to lose Beachella? Does this mean I lose Beachella? Because that's not something I think I can get over emotionally. That's the best Mm. performance of the last 10 years. Or does this mean that it gets replaced? Does Solange get as big? And do we now have Solange-Cella which arguably might be better. I mean, Beyonce has more bangers, yes. Solange might have a more consistent career, but she's also released less albums. Would she have released more? Would we get more music? Because I don't want to lose out on music. Even though, I mean, no matter what, we will, but I want to lose out in the least amount. I think it's a complicated question. I think Aida's not necessarily wrong, but I think it does totally depend on whether they just die immediately or they just never existed and, like, do we lose Beachella and not get it replaced, etc. Because I'm not dealing with another 10 years of not having a black woman headline Coachella, so. Wow. Okay. I feel historical like I and just- cultural <laughs> context. Historical and cultural context. I feel like I just heard proof. The play, just now. Uh. The metaphysics metaphysics are as follows. The history exists, but they drop off the planet right now. Okay? So, like, you still get your Beachella. You still get uh, Solange Fuck the Industry, which is one of the best songs ever written. And that you just have, from now on, you have to move forward with the Noel Sister you You called it Beachella, which which means that, like, your opinion is not invalid. Okay. Sorry, I rushed through my... Beachella. Beachella. Bitch, come on. I'm vocal. I'm getting excited right now. You know I'd be messing up my words. That's just to prove to you how much I love Solange. I don't even got to think about it. Mm. I don't even need to know the other one's name. I continue to find the word Beachella a little disappointing. I'm sorry. It's just not a pun. Moving on. This is getting disrespectful because like, I still... Yeah, I love Beyonce. Disrespectful, Lewis. <laughs> no, not that. Not that. I love Beyonce. And I've heard everyone's takes. And I've like really thought about it. And it's still Solange. So okay. <laughs> yes, well, luckily we still have both Noel sisters, so we can go ahead and stand on both of them. <laughs> Fine. Yeah. Fine. Yeah. We we don't have to go through that sliding doors universe where one of them doesn't exist. <laughs> <laughs> well, we got way too into that. Um, so I think that we will dive into our hot takes again next week with Lewis's hot take. Clearly, we're not going anywhere. we are in our homes Um, and so that's not on that we'll be right back
Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher, and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the Friend of the Pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com slash store to shop. And we are back with Alan Yang joining us on Keep It. We are so excited to talk about Tiger Tail, his debut feature film. It's dropping on Netflix April 10th. And it's about a man who reflects on the lost love of his youth and his long journey from Taiwan to America as he begins to reconnect with his estranged daughter. How's it going? It's going as well as I guess could be expected <laughs> in this very strange time. Now that even that question, how are you doing, is fraught with peril. <laughs> you know, it's like you don't want to overstep boundaries, even just saying, yeah, yeah how, how are you? It's like, uh... Uh, but no, I I'm I, I feel lucky. Everyone I you know in my family is safe right now, and so yeah, okay. I feel good. I feel good. How are you guys doing? I'm excellent, Alan. This I have to begin with this. I mean, like obviously you're an esteemed writer, whatever. Since you have come on the mic with us, you the have voice. An, you have an incredible yes. speaking. <laughs> voice. Thank you very much. It's very piercing, very loud. I always like when, when I get on a conference call, everyone always knows because it's like, yeah, hey, what's, what's up, everybody? And they're like, whoa, this guy's coming with a lot of energy right now. <laughs> I hope it's not too annoying, but uh, yeah. It's, no, it's, no, no, uh, no. You, you sound like a radio presenter. Cool. Like you really have that tonality, that ready to goness. <laughs> yeah. First of all, I just want to talk about your movie, Tiger Tail, uh, the music in it. So some of the movie is set, I'm trying to figure out, it's the 60s, 70s? Yeah. Immediately when we jump to that part in the film, I hear like this sort of like 60s dream pop sort of Mm -hmm. music. And I immediately put my phone up to Shazam it and I see that the I artists I'd never heard of um but I see like um Yao Sarong and um Fang Feifei yes um if I got their names right and like I immediately downloaded their music and it's all I've been listening to <laughs> oh that's uh, amazing seeing the movie yesterday and it's just that is just such a genre of music I love um and I had never sort of heard this sort of like, I guess called Mandapop is what my Apple iTunes calls it. <laughs> um, what did you first like? Is this like the music you grew up with? Then? Not at all. Not at all. So I, I, I'm a huge music guy. I, you know, ever since I was a little kid, it's been such a huge part of my life. And that starts from literally my parents forcing me to learn piano when I was like six years old. <laughs> so that's a little mm-hmm. bit in the movie as well, right? But at a certain point, you age out of that. And, you know, I learned a lot of instruments as a kid, but at about 13 years old, I rebelled against my parents and I bought a guitar and I taught myself to play guitar. I quit all the other instruments and then I played in a punk rock band for a while. So music has always been a really um, important part of my life and it's been a really important part of all the shows I've worked on and now this movie. It's just so powerful. You know, it's one of the tools you have in making a movie really memorable. And so when I knew I wanted, uh, you know, the young Pinjui character, the young Yun character to dance in this beautiful bar and it's kind of dingy but it's also really romantic and sensual, uh, I needed to find the perfect music. So I went on 
a crazy internet deep dive, which is one of the luxuries we have in the modern era is we can find this stuff mm-hmm. just on your own in your in your apartment, your house. And, and so I just went on this crazy dive. What I wanted to find was a melding of East and West. Mm-hmm. I wanted to find something that was evocative of rock music, mod music, that period, late 60s, early 70s, but with Mandarin lyrics and ideally a, a female singer. And so what I found was Yasu Rong or Yasu Yang, as, she, as she's also known, mm-hmm. and I found it on YouTube because as you may have discovered, Ira, it's not available on Spotify. It's not available. It's not available on a lot of these platforms. So it's only yeah. essentially available on YouTube. And so I found this mm-hmm. link and it was called Yasu Yang and the Telstars Combo. So what it it is essentially mm-hmm. for people who haven't heard it yet is it's this really cool 60s, 70s mod sounding backing band. But then a very beautiful female, Asian female singer, Taiwanese singer, who's singing in Mandarin over it. And it's very sort of upbeat. And then there's some slower songs that they do a slow dance to. Um, But it was a goldmine. And so as soon as I found that YouTube link, I wrote down the publisher. I bought the record on eBay so that we could contact the publishers and buy the rights. And I put the YouTube link in the script before I sold it. So anyone who read the script could go to that link and play it. And you know how many people mentioned it? It was It's literally the first thing people say about the script, that it has links to all the songs and you can listen to them as you read the script. And, um, um, and we like the song so much, we put it in the trailer. So it's in the beginning of the trailer. I mean, I just fucking love that. And I think that like... I don't know. That's something that people always talk about with directors and writers, like when they can pinpoint music and it's like there's certain people who can pick it better than others. Like that's one of the things I love about Tarantino, for instance. And I just think that that was such stop the movie. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Well, that's the thing. You find the right piece of music. That's the movie. Right. That's the movie. Oh, what's the movie in a two minute snippet? Play that clip of them dancing to that song and you get that first half of the movie. So um, again, really important to find. And I also want to shout out my music supervisor, Zach Cowie, who um, we always have a competition who can get more stuff in each show or movie we do. You know, he did Master of None for us. He did Forever. He did Little America. Um, and in this movie, I, I actually put one over on Zach because I, I, I got found a lot of Taiwanese music. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So this movie, I've seen you describe it as like a fever dream of your father's own recollection about his immigration story. Have you always thought this would be something you would explore cinematically? Did you always see it in your head as something that you would have to articulate on screen? And how did it come along? Because I think of it as such a departure from most of your work, with the exception of a couple episodes of Master of None. But was this always on your plate, so to speak? Uh, I wish I could say it was always on my plate, but I, I gotta say, for years, my plate was mostly uh, imagine, uh, like sort of imagined stories of white people. <laughs> you know, I yeah. basically <laughs> wrote for uh, everyone who didn't look like me for years and years and years. And honestly, uh, I feel like my own change in what I wanted to write about coincided very sort of fortunately with the culture's ability to accept stories about and by people who look like me. And I'll be totally honest, I wrote a pilot, I don't think it was more than eight years ago, about a father and a son, and it was white people, because I just didn't think it could get made. I just, like, I would be happy to write about Asian people, I just didn't think it would get made. And so 
I started writing this movie probably four years ago, and I had always obviously wanted to write and direct my own movie, but it needed to be something that I was so passionate about and that I was the right person for. And so this just seemed like such a natural story for me to tell, because as you mentioned, it's not told from a Taiwanese point of view. In some ways, it's told from the kid's point of view. It's told from uh, an American version of a Taiwanese immigrant story, and it's not necessarily 100% historically accurate because even my dad's recollections aren't 100% accurate. And then it's filtered through me and it's filtered through, frankly, a guy who's seen a lot of Ho Shen and Edward Yang and Wang Kar Wai. And so that's all sort of yeah. coloring the movie as well. You know, you know, my dad didn't see those movies. <laughs> you know, he was limited. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I've basically seen all those movies and I'm kind of combining all of those things in addition with the Western tradition and the European canon. And so there's, you know, stuff that takes place in America. And I've just never seen, look, I love Wong Kar Wai. I've never seen one of his movies come to America and then be in 2020 and sort of transition between those two worlds, which mm-hmm. again, I felt like I was the right person to tell the story because it is about being between two worlds. And that's how I always feel. You know, from my watching of Tiger Tail, and by the way, one of the most beautiful movies I've seen, cinematography, the scoring, all of that. like The it, colors. The colors. Are just like, <laughs> Thank you so yes. much. Shout out to Nigel Bluck, our cinematographer. You did an outstanding job. Absolutely, truly. And even when not much is happening in a scene and it's mostly about the characters and their connectedness, you're st- I was still like, oh, this conversation between these two women, I've never seen anything like this. And in the same way that Moonlight was like, oh, this is how you're supposed to light black people. I was like, <laughs> wow, okay, this is yeah. how, you're, how you're supposed yeah. to light Asian people. And like... It was just such a riveting movie. And I wanted to ask you, you know, if I were ever to write a feature, which I don't have the attention span to do, but when you were <laughs> writing Tiger Tail, like what movies were you looking to as for, for inspiration? And what movies also gave you like the urgency to write Tiger Tail? Like I need to rectify this thing. That's a great question. And and again, just briefly on the coloring of the movie, which I agree is, is, is just, again, I hadn't seen Asian people lit like this. And one of the ways we brought that out was quite simply, we shot a lot of the movie on 16 millimeter film, which is sort of, you can't substitute that. You know, at a certain point, they wanted us to do the whole thing digital, and they sent me their guy who would put film grain on existing digital footage. And he, he's like, I did Scorsese's show, I did all this stuff, and he showed me all this stuff, and, and me and Nigel, my DP, sat there and sort of nodded, nodded, nodded for like an hour as he did his presentation. And at the end, we said, oh, we don't want to do 35 millimeter, we want to do 16 millimeter. And he said, oh, I can't do that. So we talked to Netflix and said, hey, he said he can't do it, so 16 mil it is. And, and that really brings out, like you said, the coloring, the people's skin tone and um, I want to shout out also Alex Bickle who colored the movie and uh, by the way also colored Moonlight and so uh, he, there's a secret ingredient mm. here uh, Bickle oh. Bickle, oh, Bickle yeah. is a very, he's a very talented man he's a very talented man but, but he did a great you job you got the um, goats um, and as, as far as movie inspirations there are so many there are so many and and uh, you know the, the first few that come to mind I mentioned some of the directors earlier uh, one was E.E. which is a, a Taiwanese movie made by Edward Yang in 2000 which is a masterpiece um which which i'll never be able to touch but it is so delicately made and so emotional and evocative without being melodramatic it showed me the power of restraint it showed me the power of 
scenes that you don't see. It's about arguments that you don't see. And it's about the sort of elision. And, you know, you see that a lot in Yasujiro Ozu as well, where you're skipping over scenes. But um, that was a big one. And then Ho Shao Shen, who directed a movie called City of Sadness, which is a historical Taiwanese movie, often considered one of the greatest of all time. And that was, you know, again, as you mentioned, you know, some of these scenes are quiet scenes. And that is, to me, emblematic of the Taiwanese way, which is very humble and very sort of, in some ways, sometimes non-confrontational in a bad way. You know, I've had that sort of issue in my own family, which I sort of tried to get across in the movie, where it's not typically a part of the culture, at least in my experience, where, you know, you go have these knockdown drag out fights. You know, you watch some of these European movies or American movies, every scene's a fight. You know, it's people screaming, or, you know, you know, like, or, you know, you know that's, that's the culture. You know, sometimes, like, Italian-American culture, it's people uh-huh. screaming at each other, whatever. It's like, yeah, that's really fun and cinematic. That wasn't my experience in my family, so I tried to delve into what the conflicts were in my family, which are usually quieter, and it's about things left unsaid, and it's the problem of not communicating, and the problem of not mm-hmm. of the grandmother not telling the father that she didn't really want to move to America, and then the father not telling the daughter about his past. Like, you know, all of these things are things left unsaid. And so, on top of that, visually, as you mentioned, uh, you know, Wong Kar Wai was an influence, of course, um, in the mood for love, one of the greatest films of all time. But not only that, you know, um, Chongqing express and happy together i remember watching happy together and hearing the voiceover in that movie and honestly i hated voiceover and that movie really inspired me because the voiceover elevates that movie and and i put some voiceover in this movie um to bookend it in the beginning and the end and that voiceover is actually done by my actual father so um Mm. my dad came in and did the 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 vo and and i wanted this sort of non-actory sort of omniscient haunting voiceover that would give it this quality this almost like dreamlike quality in the beginning and end of the movie and so i had my dad come in and audition and and, and do the lines (laughs) first i didn't give him the part and 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 so um but when i cut his stuff in and and my editor daniel hayworth who, who is a fantastic collaborator has done you know every show i've ever worked on as well he cut in the voiceover and said hey man i don't speak a word of mandarin but your dad killed it like it's it just something about the way <laughs> the way he the way he delivers the lines i just know it's gonna yeah. work and so when i listened to it i knew it had worked as well so that was also really meaningful yeah i mean happy together is a movie that made me sob mm-hmm. it's, to be it's incredible i mean as, as, as like a queer person like i'm always seeing you usually see like white queer stories and then like you see moonlight was like a black queer story and i saw happy together after that and i was just like seeing two Asian queer men just like in scenes together having those conversations and it felt like that also seeing just the two women in um the laundromat um in your film I was just like I'd never see women Asian women like having conversations like this yes and how powerful is that And, and, and on some level it makes me a little sad that that's so powerful because why haven't we seen that before it's like my mom has an inner life you know, my mom has friends. My mom has conversations that are about her hopes and dreams. And that's one of my proudest things in the movie is is the Zen Zen character who, you know, obviously is a loose, fictionalized analog of my mom. But my mom has a, her own amazing story. I could make a whole other movie about her and her whole second act to her life. I know it's alluded to a little bit in Tiger Tail, but... You know, she came to this country with my dad, and, and unfortunately, you know, their marriage didn't work out. But what she did in this country after their divorce is a whole other story. It's remarkable. She essentially was, you know, she had raised my sister and me, and at the age of 40 or so, she had to start completely over. And she didn't speak the best English, and she didn't have a bunch of friends who were not both her and my dad's friends. 
And she had this second act to her life. She put herself through college. I remember helping her with her English papers. Um, she got a teaching credential. And then she started teaching high school math at basically a socioeconomic disadvantaged school in Moreno Valley. And she's the best goddamn teacher they have. I mean, <laughs> she's, she's an amazing yeah. teacher. And she's she's gotten so much capital there that she... Um, asked to teach Mandarin, and now she's the first person in that county to teach Mandarin in a public high school. That's its own crazy story, you know? I feel like you're the next um, Mike Mills. You start telling your dad's story and beginners, and then you get to 20th Century Women a few oh, years later. I you wish, know? man. Those, those, by the way, Mike Mills is a huge influence. Those movies are so yeah. amazing and so... The, the mm-hmm. thing about those movies is they, they feel so vast and powerful and emotional, and they're quote-unquote small stories, right? It's like uh, small mm-hmm. personal stories, but you can think about how powerful these stories can be even though they're, you know, on the face of it. You know, the world's not ending and, you know, Thanos isn't coming, but but it is, a, they, they still feel like big movies, you know? They the still, stakes. They yeah. still, yes, yeah. exactly. Emotional stakes always trump physical or, you know, you know jeopardy stakes. They, you know, personal I mean, emotional yeah. stakes, if, always. If you could give someone like, if you could get something like Joan Chen in this movie too, like if you could get Joan. something like her, great. If if you could give Joan like her Annette Benning, 20th Century Women, like I, Joan Lewis would collapse. Oh man! Like, I, I, but I would. I started watching um, Twin Peaks for the first time. By the way, um, it's so fucking amazing <laughs> in that. And I, I don't. It, it for me, it's such a me show, and it's taken me so long to see mm-hmm. it. I don't know why, but uh, I was more of like an X Files kid growing up. Um, but just like seeing her and just seeing her in this, it's just like seeing her lit beautifully and giving work to do. Yes, and amazing. And her work. I, I have a small story about her because it's it's just you know I was fortunate enough to meet her years ago in Shanghai. I went out there to to do some small uh, you know a, a couple days of writing on something for DreamWorks, and she happened to be involved as well. And so I met her basically personally through this and, and we exchanged info and stuff. And so years later, this part came up for the grown up version of UN and you know, this has to be a magical person. It has to be someone who is not just a charming individual in person, but is a symbol, is a metaphor for everything you've left behind. And so I knew it had to be Joan. And we sent it to her and she said, no, no, I'm too busy, whatever. I'm directing a movie in China, all this stuff. And so finally, I just I just called her. I was just like, Joan, you got to do this for us. It's one day of work. No one else can do it. And she's like, okay, I'll do it. And so she flew in <laughs> and she came in. And, uh, and then when the day she showed up, I was like, oh, no. She looks too young. <laughs> I was like, she just looks too good. <laughs> she looks too good. I mean, Ty looks good, but but I, I was like, man, Joan, are you like 38 years old? This is crazy. <laughs> um, but she looked, she just came in and, and again, she just has a movie star level charisma, like you were saying, Ira. It's just you yeah. can't you can't teach that. And so she, we just we just yeah, we wrote her like secretary that day. <laughs> you know, I fe- I'm a child of an immigrant as well, and it was it's an East African family, but I feel like talking to my mom and getting information from her about her life is always like, like, how are you? And she goes, well, I was in a war when I was younger. Like, <laughs> like that's, that's how they like eke out parts of their traumatic lives like that. And I wanted to know, what was it like getting information from your father about his life? What was it like sitting him down? Was it easy? Was it like pulling teeth? For the vast majority of my life, it was like pulling teeth. And, and I'll be perfectly honest, you know, my relationship with my parents and my whole family has always been good, but 
again, it's never, they've never been the most forthcoming people. You know, they, they weren't like your dad. They weren't spilling stories all the time. I think that's just their nature, especially my, my dad's nature. Cause my mom is a chatterbox. Now my mom is hilarious. I've, I've never seen anyone change as much as uh, in, in their lifetime, as much as my mom, she's the most gregarious, loudest, funniest person ever now. But my dad has always been quiet. And so our relationship has, has changed for the better kind of pretty naturally over the course of the last 10 years. And then even more recently, the last five years, I've kind of poked and prodded more. He's opened up a little bit. We took a trip to Taiwan that was partially the inspiration for this movie. And so it started getting easier and he started telling those stories. And, and actually, coincidentally, after, you know, four or five years ago, after I met Joan in Shanghai, I flew to Taiwan and had my dad meet me there. And it was the first time I had been to Taiwan since I was seven years old. And so on that trip, my dad told me some stories because we were in Taiwan. It felt natural. And I put some of those stories wholesale into the movie. So thanks, Dad, for that. Uh, you don't get a co-writing credit. You don't get any of the fees. But thank you for that. And, and you know, it's, it's our relationship has gotten better and better. And, and, you know, he's a pretty good texter now. He texts me a lot. It's a lot about uh, politics and right now the coronavirus. But, but it's still texting. And that's so much more communication than we've ever had in our lives. And, uh, you know, I'm in my 30s now. And, and, and uh, uh, it's taken this long, but it's, it's worth it. And the same goes for my mom as well. You know, they're, they're both very, 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 very uh, intelligent, warm people. And it just took time. I think uh, when I think of you, Alan, I think specifically of, and I have an issue where I believe in the transformative power of awards, so I apologize. <laughs> but um, when, when you won the uh, Emmy for comedy writing uh, for Master of None, now to me, I would think a moment like that was would be like a crystallizing, everything's different now because this happened to me. Is that a moment in your life where you think there was a before winning that award and after it? And did things change for you? A lot of my life has sort of been espousing the opposite of what you're saying, which is like, yeah, awards yeah. are awards, whatever. You know, like you, you win them or you don't win them. And it's like, you can't control that. So as a person who makes the stuff, I think mentally I've been saying that because you want to prepare yourself and know that you're not going to win all the time. Like no one wins all the time. You, you know, you, you win some, you lose some, et cetera. But um, I do feel like, look, that you can't dispute that that was a big moment for me. Right. And, and not only a big moment for winning, but also because Aziz and I agreed that we'd both speak and that, you know, I would go first. And because he's like, look, man, I get a lot of FaceTime. I, I get to talk on camera all the time, but you really deserve to do this. And I feel like I tried to make the most of my 30 seconds after Matt LeBlanc handed me the statue. Right. So, 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 so you make the most of it and you wouldn't believe how many people still talk to me about what I said meant to them. And I know it's like. I'm not curing COVID up there. I'm not doing something that's super, super actually, you know, physically important. But a lot of Asian Americans specifically have told me they just never seen anyone who looked like them win something like that and talk about being Asian and talk about being Asian in Hollywood and talk about how we need to do more and how it's just the beginning. And that's what I really want to stress now is a lot of people are like, yeah, you must be thrilled. You got all these movies and all this stuff. It's like, yeah, we have like three movies. Like you guys have every <laughs> other movie. So it's not, yeah. it's not quite, it's not quite a level playing field yet. You know, it's, we got a long way to go, but um, you know, look, I obviously put 
last four years of my life into this movie. And believe me, I'm going to be making a lot more movies with Asian American people in really prominent roles in front of and behind the camera. So it gives you something, right? There's a difference between winning that award and not necessarily getting to be on stage that day. And, you know, this look, we talk about, I mean, if you look at Master of None, it happened for Lena the next year. You know, we would talk about, I, I was the first Asian American person to win that award. And the next year she was the flag, first black woman to win that award. And so, I, I mean, I, I, we're really proud of that fact. It's one show, you know, it's one pretty little show. If you, if you look at the budget of Master None, it's pretty small. <laughs> so we're very proud of what we were able to do with that show. So I'm very, 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 very proud of, of, of what we were able to do for sure. Yeah. Uh- Thank you so much for being here, Alan. I've really enjoyed seeing your work from Parks and Rec going up to Tiger Tail. I mean, I'm working on a Mike Sure show now, so you know it's like oh yeah, it's just, it gets it, it's just I'm on Q Force. Oh nice. um, the show he's doing with Gabe Liebman. Mate, I love Gabe. Uh, I love and, Mike, man. Two two good dudes. Yeah, two good dudes. Yeah, it's so just so funny and just so like nice people, and it's just nice being in that world and getting to write and just coming from comedy in a room where like people are telling fun stories and letting you tell stories that you want to tell and then being able to blossom into your own thing and you're doing it and it's really inspiring and forever is easily one of my favorite shows oh thank you made. thank you very like, much I love that show so much fred armison and maya rudolph together is just <laughs> the most ridiculous match and it consistently works it works on big mouth too like they are just some of the it, best it's a great dynamic. Thank you guys so much for having me. It was a lot of fun, and, and hopefully uh, we can all do it in person someday. Um, but it was fun yeah. doing it from homes as well. I like seeing a little <laughs> little sliver of you guys' houses. So. Yeah. <laughs> when I organize Joan Chen Fest, you can be the, the speaker of honor. Yeah. Oh, I could go on about Joan, man. I could go on about Joan. She's amazing. Every, everybody, <laughs> go and see The Last Emperor. If you yeah, Last Emperor. Yeah. Yeah. Do a Joan Festival, man. Uh, Twin yes. Peaks. Just, Last Emperor, Tiger Tail, put them all in a row. <laughs> <laughs> I just I just want 30 minutes of her on stage just holding a phone tensely <laughs> as she goes on Twin Peaks. <laughs> she can do it all, man. She can do it all. Oh, thank you so much for being here. Thank all you, right. Thank you, guys. Okay. Yeah. Bye. <laughs> And we're here with our favorite segment of the episode, Keep It. Although, I don't know. We had Alan Yang and Betty Gilpin this week. so <laughs> Tougher call than usual. <laughs> I know. Uh, anyway, uh, why don't we go ahead with our Keep It. Are they all coronavirus related again? Is, is that just all we're sick of? <laughs> Mine's tangentially related to coronavirus. It's like it's, <laughs> it is the common through line. Like I can't mm-hmm. avoid it. I really can't. But um, yeah. I mean, I can go. My keep it. Go ahead. I don't know because I really don't know what's a bigger threat to the nation right now. If it's coronavirus or Sean Mendez and Camila Cabello, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> like I truly have no idea. And I'm not gonna. Com- I'm not even gonna complain about the fact that Camila looks like she has always just tasted shrimp for the first time, or that like, <laughs> <laughs> like you know, like like that little sour face, um, or that Sean Mendez is just like a Vine star that we let into popularity. Sorry, I don't know if that makes anyone mad. Vine is dead. No one remembers it. It's okay. No one, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's TikTok. It's TikTok before TikTok. They're usually posting like videos of them swapping spit and like biting each other's jaws as affection. Like I that's usually what they're doing. Now they're just 
out all the time. And I don't know if it's media picking up on them and posting it everywhere or if we are just in an uproar and like need someone to be mad at right now. But I'm sick of them. I'm sick of seeing their faces. I'm sick of seeing them together. I'm sick of seeing them happy. Like I I know it's petty and it's probably because I'm alone in the studio apartment. But like stop. Just stop being together. I will say about the two of them, I mean, like, when, when they were performing that goddamn song, Senorita, for the 50th time at whatever <laughs> award show it was, they would always have to choreograph some weird version of quote-unquote chemistry where, like, she would be, like, walking around him and he'd be playing the guitar or whatever, and it was always so everything but charisma. It, mm-hmm. it felt way too choreographed to me. I don't know. It feels like the definition of publicity mm-hmm. you know it just like it felt like they were drumming up interest for senorita and now that the song is done i was like y'all still doing this <laughs> and it's not even believable like the the sincerity of it is just oh my gosh camilla and sean i wish they would quit my my last note is that like if it comes down to a point where the apocalypse like comes and wipes us all out guys please don't let them repopulate the earth those two Mm. that's it that's it that's it they're not allowed to create the new race no speaking of uh, couples walking in wilderness um, during the coronavirus <laughs> I, I I feel like I have to go to mine next only because mine is about Ben Affleck and Anna de Armas and they are mm. another couple who has been seen photographed together however I am of the different opinion that I don't find them obnoxious like I find Sean and Camila Mm -hmm. because they're fresh. And I think so many people are just mad at them right now, calling them a publicity couple because they don't like Ben Affleck. Mm. And so many people are referring to her as his publicity girlfriend, which puts some respect on Anna de Armas, star of Knives Out's name, okay? <laughs> like, first of all, what we're not going to do is disrespect Anna the D. Armas. Anna the D. Armas. that does not work. Um, but and upcoming Marilyn Monroe, her. Anna de Armas. Right. And just like... No time to die. We would be seeing her in that if it wasn't for the coronavirus. So you would be seeing her in films. We've seen her in films. She is an amazing actress, and I don't like the disrespect towards her. But also, I think they're a cute couple. I think that people just sort of don't like Ben Affleck, so they feel some type of way about them being together. And like I've seen a lot of comments of people saying that they are, quote-unquote, ignoring quarantine. And... You know you're allowed to take walks in L.A. And I feel like half of our friends are taking walks to stay sane. They are only together. So I don't see anything about them breaking quarantine. They're not hanging out in a park with mm-hmm. other people. They're not Instagramming themselves at parties. They're just, like not touching things. It's, they're touching <laughs> each other. This is literally what other couples are doing right now during this thing. They're taking a walk. If anything, the people breaking quarantine are the clusters of paparazzi who are mm-hmm. following them around. Also, I just want to say, in specifically in LA, the few times I have to get in my car to drive around, you would think it'd be freeing just to get out of the house, but I spent all my time in the car noticing people in clumps and being mad at our species. So Right. <laughs> like, there are people down the street on Larchmont near my apartment who were just, like, lined up outside press fucking juicery. <laughs> you yeah, know they juice. deliver, for one. Two, you need to fucking juice. That bad? Come on. I mean, that, that vanilla almond that they have, that vanilla almond juice is really the bomb. You're going to have to stand on that one. But come on now. Press juicery. 
the clusters. We're we're all, we're all gonna die. You know, we're gonna, we're, or we're gonna be, we're gonna be in our homes mm. for three years. But at least we'll be nourished. Okay, we'll be nourished with juice. <laughs> with juice. I with think juice. my only and I probably would have been one of those people not commenting like why are they out and together, but like Ben Affleck and Anna Darmas. It's like because Anna to me is fresh, is new. And I'm like, girl, you really dipping deep into the old Hollywood to get a boy. Like you could have, (laughs) you could have everyone you wanted. Anyone. He needs love. I know. I think, I think people feel some type of way about him because of the whole Jennifer Garner thing. Yeah. You know, and like, I think that he will always love her and like regret that relationship ending the way it did. But you know, it was, he had an addiction, you know, and hopefully this is a new part of his life where he doesn't have that addiction. He still has that shitty back tattoo, but (laughs) he doesn't have the addiction. And you know, maybe Anna de Armas is, you know, his, his saving grace. This is actually already too much fan fic for me. Like, s- slow down. (laughs) We don't know what's happening. And then Anna, you're right, you're right, you're right. And then Anna reached for the book and picked it up and said, Sartre, have you ever heard of him? And Ben Affleck said, yes, I feel like my life has been no exit. And then they kiss. That's my fanfic. Honestly, Ira, it's so funny that both of our keep-its are to a white man and his Cuban girlfriend walking around during, like, what is wrong? Very specific, like, hatred going on right now. But uh, sorry, Lewis. <laughs> What's I'm, your keep it this week? I am happy that my keep it is mysteriously not Corona related. It is. Uh, I think this is the deepest well in which we pull keep it's a casting news decision. Here we go. Um, mm. Mine keep it is to Kate McKinnon being cast as Carol from Tiger King in the mm. upcoming Baskin? Tiger King scripted version that we don't need because, by the way. As we've said previously, and this is the elementary take on it, it defies mockumentary. Everybody in Tiger King is to the nth and dressed up like in in party city finery and (laughs) all this stuff. But first of all, Carol in Tiger King is a specific kind of not 32 years old, which is what Kate McKinnon is, first of all. Now, can I picture Kate McKinnon saying... Hey, all you cool cats and kittens. I can picture her saying that and, and with a familiar southern twang. Yeah. But that's Hey, all you cool cats and kittens. But see, this is why Kate McKinnon got cast, Ira. This is see. why Kate got cast. But that's as far as I can picture her dialing into the role. To me, Carol, if she's going to be a, a compelling cinematic scripted character, needs that well of je ne sais quoi kind of I, I don't want to say murderous because we don't know what she did or what she didn't do but there needs to she be she killed more that a, man but there needs to be more of an element of mystery about her and I feel like you need somebody like Merritt Weaver for example mm. a Julianne Moore you need that quality that Melissa McCarthy can bring where there is like a deep well of something really messed up going on mm-hmm. whereas I think Kate plays everything a little bit too light for this role to mm-hmm. function properly but by the way can I just say about Tiger King and we're still talking about it a week later and I'm sorry to drag this on if you've already had this conversation I with finally watched friends. it by the way so. no, oh, yeah. I've been like are, are there 200 episodes because people are still talking about it right on right Twitter. right um 
my thing about that show is, and I feel this way about so many of these shows, it ultimately was just empty calories to me. It had no perspective on tiger trading other than it's bad or like mm-hmm. too many people in the United States own them. And I, it's entertaining as you're watching it because you can't believe the, the literal plot points of occurring like that person died or uh, mm-hmm. we, there's this theory about that person, but Shaq I didn't leave there? with anything else. Yeah. Oh yeah, Shaq appears. <laughs> like, I just but, feel like ultimately it was, it, it unfortunately felt like a waste of my time ultimately. You know, mm. I made it to I, episode five and then I was like, you know what? I really don't even care what happens to these wild people. Like, it's not, this is not my storyline to follow anymore. And that's it's why. It's riveting, but yeah, I agree. Tony Collette. Mm. That's who I want to see play that role. I mean, there's a heftiness that might need to be there, but I don't care. <laughs> I want Tony Ac- Collette to Actually, play. Aida, I like that suggestion more than my own because Tony Collette has that, what is going on in the eyes quality? Eyebrows. Contempt. Mm. Yeah, mm-hmm. what's going on there? I just thought that Chloe Feynman's impersonation of Carol on yeah. Instagram was already just so like pitch perfect and better, and the casting of Kate McKinnon just seems so obvious. So I agree, Lewis. Also, it's another one of those things where it's, yes, a film being made of a very popular documentary, like that Three Identical Brothers mm-hmm. thing. It's like, we, we don't need it. Mm-hmm. We have the documentary. Although maybe the film will have a point of view, like you said. Um, it, it reminds me of like when we were talking about Hillary weeks ago. Like That was such a great documentary because I felt like it had something to say about Hillary politically in the past, in the present, and like what it means for the future, right? And Tiger King, I'm just not getting, there's no editor there or like there's, there's no thesis. There's no thesis. In particular, like, like, like what is this about? All the perspective you get on the grossness of the, tiger hoarding comes from carol who of mm-hmm. course is a incredibly suspicious character in many other ways so it's and just, she runs her own circus basically like i feel like she is almost abusing animals in the same way right, right. also has sort of that way. and to your point lewis that i don't think kate mckinnon should play it because she has this i mean too much levity it's almost too much comedy there's something about carol where she seems like she's a genius like wicked in her way but i still think that not kate <laughs> Correct. No, there's she's she's like the Uber Joe exotic or something, you know. Yes. The wickedly talented Carol Baskin. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, that is our show this week. We will be back again with more hot takes. Yeah. I know you're waiting for them. And <laughs> thanks again to Benny Gopin and Alan Yang for being here. We'll see you next week. Keep It is a product of Crooked Media. Caroline Rustin is our producer. It's Caroline like the princess, the one you don't care about. Our editor is Bill Lance, and Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn and Nadine Melkonian, for filming and editing our video content every week. Ashley's Memorial Day sale is going on now. Shop our biggest selection of hot buys, cool deals, or shop limited time savings on new summer spaces. Plus, get 72-month special financing on select in-store mattress purchases made with your Ashley Advantage Synchrony credit card between May 14th and June 3rd. Whether you're redecorating indoors or rethinking your outdoor space, save big on this season's trending styles. Only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. Minimum monthly payments required. No minimum purchase required. See store for details.